Hey, it's Lou Carloso, host of the NMD Plus podcast, Bankadelic, based in Chicago. And today on Dave and Darm Demystify, they have Ben Joachim. As the founder and CEO of Disperse, Ben cracked the code that bridged NGOs, aid, and money management via blockchain. Though ahead of its time, the effort fell short, not that Ben could be kept down for long. A standout, community-minded, social enterprise entrepreneur, Ben is today the head of strategy for Principality Building Society and a leader in the emerging Wales fintech scene. Listen up as Ben reflects on his career, what he's learned from his challenges, and how he's moving forward, helping Wales grow in the process on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. Dave. Dom. The Dave and Dom Demystify Show making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dar Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Darm Demystify show. And this week we have a special guest, Ben Joachim from Principality Building Society. Welcome, Ben. Good afternoon thanks for having me to start off with i mean you've got a really interesting background and actually quite an interesting journey to becoming head of strategy at principality so could you tell us a bit about that yeah so i think whilst i was studying both at school and then at uni i guess i realized that i wanted to do more for my community more for wider society and that certainly led me down the charitable route the social enterprise route and so in my 20s i guess across the whole of my 20s i focused on leading a number of different charities and social enterprises initially it was with a uk focus and then that big part of my career was focused working across sub-saharan africa and so more into kind of the aid industry or the international development side of things and so i spent a number of years working for different ngos international ngos primarily across sub-saharan africa before i guess the fintech world yeah spoke to me let's say <laughs> I mean, that's you can't just leave it there. You're going to have to expand a little bit by what that actually was. This is going back five years ago now. I've been working in the aid industry for a number of years and started to recognize a number of problems that we as the industry were facing, especially when it came to managing money, basically. If we look at the existing banking system, the reality is it wasn't built for the charitable sector. It wasn't built for the aid industry on a global basis. If we look at some of the specific problems within that, the existing banking system is slow when we're moving money across borders, especially into, let's say, some more complex jurisdictions. And the difference in time between two days or two weeks in a humanitarian context can literally mean the matter of life or death, whether resources arrive or don't. I think the other element is the cost. You know, banks charging upfront fees, offering poor exchange rates, and that's money that's therefore getting caught in the system and not going to support the cause, whatever that cause was. But I think in some ways, more importantly, and most importantly, that the existing banking system is opaque and it's private. And that works in the majority of contexts, right? When I get paid by my employer, I don't want them to you know, necessarily know or see what I'm spending my money on. But in the context of the aid industry, when we're talking about charitable funds or public funds, actually that transparency is really important. 
from a kind of an external facing perspective, but also from an internal perspective, because if we're unable to track the flow of funds effectively, how do we know exactly the impact that we're having? And so whether you're an individual donor donating, you know, £10 to a charity, Oxfam or Save the Children as an example, or whether you're the British government distributing, you know, tens of billions annually, the question still remains, well, what happened to that money? Where did it go? How was it spent? And most importantly, what was the impact? That becomes very, very difficult to trace within the existing banking system. And that's where the idea for Disperse was born. What if we could build a new type of financial institution where, in essence, you could trace that flow of funds from end to end, from donor to beneficiary, and start to see opportunities to kind of make those chains or those flows more efficient? If we were simplifying it, whether we referred to it like that four or five years ago, in essence, what we were building was a challenger bank, but with traceability built in. We saw the opportunity, you know, around 2015, 16, with the emergence of blockchain. And what would that mean in terms of that notion of verified traceability, let's say. And so we went on a long journey over four years, building dispersed, building a new type of financial institution for aid. It's really interesting, I guess, the concept of that transparency. So were you immediately drawn to the idea of using blockchain because of the sort of public leisure and all the other bits and pieces which come with it, which kind of, I guess, is inherently more transparent, so to speak. Is that why blockchain was seen as an answer? We saw blockchain as the solution. And in some respects, other things followed suit, right? We certainly didn't frame it as though we were building a global bank for aid at the start. We were looking at what if we could build rails that had that traceability or transparency and built. And then, you know, in essence, we realized that we had to build the financial institution around it from a regulatory perspective, especially. That was really critical. We certainly started off, we weren't really interested in crypto at all. You know, going back 2016, 17, you know, the emergence of all these new coins, you know, the ICO wave or the ICO crave craze, let's say. <laughs> we weren't interested in that element. I think that was a very different proposition in some respects. But when we looked at the aid industry, what we saw was an industry that had a desire and was in motion of moving towards a more decentralized model. At the moment, the aid industry is very much controlled by governments. That's where the majority of funding is coming from. And so it's very much a top-down model. Decisions being made at the top of the chain, let's say. And from a localization perspective, what does it look like if we can shift that power further down the chain? What would it look like if those close to where resources are actually being deployed are able to make those decisions? And so I think as we went on with that journey, we saw the opportunity for blockchain from a governance perspective as well. Our ambition was what would a decentralized financial institution look like? We certainly recognize that as a journey. Going back to the ICO wave as an example, you know, everyone was, we are building a decentralized system. And you know, what they discovered quickly was that didn't really mean anything to anyone you know, in terms of solving real world problems. You know, banks might not be perfect, but generally we look to put our <laughs> faith and trust in banks rather than a piece of computer code. The technology actually delivered for you. I mean, everyone talks about the transparency and, you know, how blockchain is a distinct advantage in that space. But did it actually deliver for you? I think it certainly accelerated our journey at the start in terms of being able to get out there and share our story, share our message of what we were building. But actually, when I look back, it probably really, really slowed us down because we weren't just thinking about, you know, how do we build traceability? We weren't just thinking about how do you build a bank? We were looking at how do you build the whole infrastructure around that and starting from scratch and hands up, you know, I'm not a developer, I'm not a coder. I hadn't worked in finance before. And so, you know, it was certainly a learning curve. I think interestingly, we were building before banking as a service really became a proper thing. You know, we'd seen the emergence of some challenger banks, you know, Monzo and Starling, et cetera, were starting to get a huge amount of traction. But 
you know, being able to kind of buy the bank off the shelf wasn't necessarily there. And, you know, the naivety of me as a fintech founder, you know, thought it made sense for us to try and build a lot of that ourselves. So I think we certainly got distracted because of the blockchain and what that meant in terms of our architecture and our infrastructure. And I think it also probably distracted our clients as well. Small, medium, large NGOs or charities to UN agencies and government institutions. They're not interested in the rails that their bank sits on. So why should they be interested in the rails that Disperse sits on? Certainly that was a distraction. But would we have even got to that place if we weren't using blockchain, if we weren't talking about blockchain? Hindsight's a great thing, I guess. Could we have done that in a centralized way? Yeah. (laughs) Would it have been much easier? For sure. For clarity's sake, I mean, your idea was essentially a bank that charities would run on top so that if I'm a donor, I can sort of follow where my money ends up. You're providing the infrastructure to enable all of that. In most of these startups as well, you know, the one thing that I learned, you know, quite often, it's not the idea, it's the timing of the idea that also happens. And, And it just sounds like you had just unfortunately bad timing. You know, there are always going to be challenges in the execution and stuff like that, right? But, you know, timing has a big factor in success, I think. I think you're right. And look, we were all building a startup. It's a risk. It's the game you play, right? And so going back to last summer, it was obviously very disappointing. More disappointing because that problem remains unsolved. And if solved, I believe, would make a huge difference to the way money flows and obviously to the recipient of aid in that regard. And so that's the frustration. But It's the startup world and, you know, you can dwell or you can move on. You talked about bankers of service not existing conceptually a few years back. I mean, it sort of feels like there's more and more bits of perhaps what's needed to kind of get this really going, coming on the scene almost on a daily basis. So I'm sure it's never say never in terms of the opportunity to do it. You know, to Darmish's point, a lot is around time. We were really focused that we didn't want our work to go to waste. And so if you go to disperse.com, what you'll see is in essence a legacy website. We've tried to one, share our story, but also share our journey and our learning. And there's a number of resources in there, a number of documents that we produce and a number of reports that we produce in the hope that if someone decides that they really want to tackle that problem, they'll go there and hopefully won't make as many mistakes as we made. Obviously, you know, making those mistakes is part of that journey in itself. But if someone decides to pick up that problem, hopefully there's a useful starting point. So you know, all is not lost. At the moment, it doesn't feel like something I'm going to be going back to anytime soon. But never say never, right? Never say never. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Look, now, I mean, you're at Principality, and I know you're very, very new there. But this is probably the right time to ask you this question. Coming in fresh, coming in, you know, having been in the fintech side of things, doing things without a legacy thinking, What's your views on the future of, let's say, small banks or building societies? Is there a future? What kind of future could it be? There is a future. I think the last 12 months has certainly kind of turned things on its head a lot. And Principality is is a 160-year-old organization. We're a mutual. We're owned and run by our members. So in that regard, we put our people first over our profits in some regards, not to negate the importance of profits within our model. But we've been a branch-based business. You know, we have a number of branches across the whole of Wales and on the borders as well. And over the last however long, we've been providing incredible customer experience in branch and also in telephony. We and the wider building society sector are quite a way behind from a digital perspective. And obviously, the last 12 months have really accelerated or escalated the importance of digital products and digital channels to engage. So we have a membership of about half a million people 
primarily across Wales, although some in England, obviously we provide savings and mortgages. And so a lot of our lending that we do is in England as well. But for there to be a future for Principality and a number of other building societies, we have to embrace digital. There's no two ways about it. And that's at the forefront of our strategy, ensuring that we can, in essence, replicate the customer experience that we currently provide in branch through our digital channels. But that means that we need to start to really learn about our customers and understand what it is that our members want. And in some ways, it's quite easy to do that in branch. Mrs. Jones can walk in every Friday morning and have a chat with the cashier. And, you know, they know it's her daughter's birthday next week. Those things are useful in terms of building that relationship. Do we really understand actually what it is that they want as individuals, what their goals are, what their life's ambitions are? And so the question is, how do we replicate that in the digital world? And it's harder, especially if, if as a financial institution, you don't have that current account, because the current account, in essence, is kind of the gateway to understanding their spending and their ambitions and et cetera, et cetera. These are the conversations we're having at the moment. How do we really start to learn what it is our customers want and their desires for themselves, for their families and for their communities as well? Do you see yourself breaking away from that kind of geography driven segmentation or... Do you think that there's a way of reinventing that model? So it's still around the locality, but there's a different connection to people because it's now moving towards a without boundaries kind of non-geography based segmentation. Yeah, good question. I mean, it was one of the things that surprised me most, although when I kind of break it down, it doesn't really surprise me. We have a significant number of customers in England, as I said, because we provide mortgages. 75% of new mortgages are through broker channels. And so when you're considering which mortgage provider you want to go on, you're going to be led by price first. Price is the primary driver. Do you then trust the institution? And, you know, are they doing the things that are important to you? Probably around, you know, the ESG agenda, let's say. Are they focusing on the environment? Are they focusing on the social and communities as well? But if it's primarily price driven, you know, I think that kind of tears up the rule book in terms of the notion of a Wales only business. We're 160 years old, we're Wales's largest building society, but we're the sixth largest building society in the UK. And so in that regard, you know, I don't think we can continue to just think about Wales. I think it's an important element in terms of our roots and our heritage, and we want to retain that. And we're proud to serve the communities that we do. We're proud to sponsor the Principality Stadium in Cardiff, but there's a bigger opportunity for sure. Could we be doing more in Scotland? Potentially. And so I think we need to be looking beyond the borders, let's say, and seeing it as a UK-wide opportunity. But how that manifests, you know, from a business that's got Welsh branches to moving into a digital space where, you know, it's non-branch based, I think that's a really exciting opportunity for us. So Principality is based out of Cardiff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What's the fintech scene like in Wales? London sort of fancies itself as the centre of all things fintech. but Centre of the world for fintech. That's right. I was just kind of keen to understand what's going on in Wales. I think the fintech scene here in Wales is emergent in its nature. So interestingly, I sit on the advisory board of Fintech Wales. We're a new, a relatively newly established membership organisation established about two years ago, primarily by a community of fintech founders and wider professionals operating in the sector, you know, with the ambition to accelerate fintech activity to support startups, to be a place where founders can come and start and grow their business, but also be a place where those corporates that exist, including ourselves as principality, have a role to play. I think the interesting thing about Wales, if we compare it to London or other larger fintech centres, is our focus on community and purpose. Clearly, a number of founders are building with 
an exit or wealth creation in mind. But I don't think that's generally why people start businesses or the startups, let's say. I think they start them because they love solving problems and they love building solutions. But I think in Wales, we go beyond that and certainly not to negate anywhere else. But I think we go beyond that in the notion that we're here for a bigger purpose, that we're here to create an impact across the communities that we serve. What we see is a much more a supportive culture rather than a competitive culture, which in some ways probably works against us, right? I think, you know, competition clearly is really important in the tech startup world. But what we see is a number of founders really want to create that shift and also create a legacy. Now, whether that's a personal legacy or a family legacy or a legacy, you know, for their country, let's say, I think that's really important. But I think the other shift that we're seeing, obviously, because of the pandemic, is people moving away from London and wanting to have lower living costs better quality of life. And clearly Cardiff as a capital city can position itself quite well. We're right by the sea. We're also right by the mountains. We've got, you know, four very large universities in terms of the talent pool that's emerging from that. One of our big challenges is access to capital. And every founder that I know here in Wales will have to raise outside of Wales. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but what it probably demonstrates is that there aren't enough large enough exits within Wales yet. I've criticized founders collectively, no one individually, for maybe exiting too early. You know, you're happy with 10 million and that will sort you out for the rest of your life. And clearly that's a great exit in some respects. But what happens if you 10x that? What happens if you take it to 100 million? And then what does that mean in terms of the recycling or reinvestment of capital? And that is starting to happen. And I think we'll see that more and more. But we need more of that, right? Because it's those angels that are going to be kind of the early stage catalysts for those founders. And you know, when I was raising our first round, we were scraping the barrels to try and raise that money. We're very lucky in Wales that we have something Development Bank of Wales and they have their own angel funds, but it's a government funded program. It's not founders that have been there and got the T-shirt, let's say. And those are the people that you really need to surround yourself by. So we need more of that. And so FinTech Wales, what we're doing is just trying to build that community, trying to build that ecosystem. So whether you're you know, right at the start of that journey or further along, or whether you've exited, that you have a role to play within supporting that ecosystem across across the nation. Ben, thank you so much. It's been an incredibly interesting chat with you. I mean, we've covered so much ground. I feel we could go on for a long time, but I just wanted to thank you so much for coming and chatting to us and look forward to reading more about FinTech Wales. We'll post the URL on the up for disperse on the right up for the podcast as well so people can kind of access that so sounds like a great place to go and learn some stuff amazing journey well done ben yeah well thanks for having me both really appreciate it good to chat as well fabulous cool brilliant thank you for tuning in to dave and don demystify we hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on soundcloud Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.